Welcome to Impacting Jamaica, where we shine the spotlight on the many but often ignored positive happenings, activities, projects, and investments at every level across every sector to inspire, motivate, and excite people everywhere. Impacting Jamaica is powered by the Philip and Christine Gore Family Foundation. Welcome to Impacting Jamaica, a podcast series that aims to celebrate and amplify the stories of Jamaicans in Jamaica and abroad, and of course, friends of Jamaica. I am your host, Sinai Flary, and my special guest today is an absolute living legend. I'm so honored to be joined by Barbara Blake Hanna. How are you? I am blessed. I'm really blessed. It's the Sabbath, and it's also Ethiopian New Year, so I'm really blessed today. Wonderful. Now, Barbara, you are an award-winning journalist, a pioneer, a filmmaker, and also a cultural consultant. Tell us a little bit about your career. Whoa, a little bit. Well, I started out as a journalist working for my father's magazine. My father was a magazine publisher, monthly magazine called Spotlight, which is the Time magazine of the Caribbean. And I, I mean, it started the year before I was born. So I really grew up in, in a journalist's office. Um, my first job with him was when I was 17 and I continued, uh, went to live in England. And there I realized I could um, get training as uh, in public relations, which is really what I was doing with my journalistic career in Jamaica. So I took the exams and got my qualification and got a good job with doing the PR for the Jamaica Tourist Board and the Jamaican government. And from that, I was able to write articles in the British media and really become a journalist in Britain, which led me to apply for a job as a television journalist. And I got a job with Thames TV, which kind of has now made me famous because I was, I was the first time they put a black person in such a role, you know, being a, a current affairs journalist. But um, racism overtook and caused them to say, sorry, we can't keep you any longer. And that became a, a cause celebrity even now, 50 years later. But I left England after 10 years and returned to Jamaica continued my journalistic career while I developed um, politically. Racism in Britain had made me so aware of being black. And um, it was at the time of Black is Beautiful and Black Power. The whole of that movement had happened when I was living in England. And it inspired me to come back to Jamaica and investigate um, Garveyism, Marcus Garvey, our first national hero, and the, the, the icon of the Black movement all over the world. It, um, because of him, Garvey, um, Ghana, Nkrumah in Ghana um, made their national flag have the Black Star on it in tribute to Garvey's Black Star line. And Garveyism inspired many Jamaicans to follow a pathway that became Rastafari. And um, in following that pathway, um, I learned of Emperor Selassie and Ethiopian, Ethiopian history and the Ethiopian Christianity. So I've really done most of the life I've lived has been because I've traveled those paths. So the things I write and the work I do has been in those areas of, of life. So one could go into details and branch off, whether it be 
trying to make reparations happen or running a, a black film festival, reggae film festival, or just writing continually about Gavi and about black issues, looking at life in Jamaica from a black perspective. So that's really been my life, I would say, if you want it in a few words. <laughs> that was a wonderful summary. And I mean, you've had such an extraordinary life. Um, I want to go back to the history making part of, of your career when you said you was the first black TV journalist here in the UK. Talk to us about that moment. Was you aware that you was making history by being the first black woman or black person on TV? Not at all, because, you know, there'd been black people on TV, you know, singing and dancing and making jokes. And in fact, I'd even been on TV once before. Um, they had a quiz show and I was able to come on and give them questions about Jamaica when I was doing the PR. So it was nothing new. I'd only applied for a job as a journalist, thinking they'd hire me, you know, in the, in the office doing stories. So when they asked me to audition, that was no big thing. I'd done TV in Jamaica, read the news, hosted a quiz show. It was when, you know, the journalists were introduced to the host of the program and us three journalists who'd be on the show. And they rushed out of the, the, the press room to file the story that this was the first black on British television. And I mean, I was quite astonished that I was the first, but that's okay, you know? That's cool. That was quite cool with me. It was a job, and it was a job I'd been trained for so many years to step into. And so I just did the job as best I could. It wasn't difficult. It wasn't difficult at all. You know, yeah. who wouldn't like to be asking? I mean, we journalists ask questions, but here now was a camera in front of me when I was asking the questions, instead of me having to write them down or type them out. So that wasn't very difficult as a journalist, and I am a journalist, you know? It's been on my passport since I was 17 years old, journalist, and I always have been. Yeah. Wonderful, thank you so much. And thank you for opening those doors because now in the UK, we see so many prominent black British uh, TV journalists on our screens presenting the news. It, it doesn't seem like something new, and now it's just a regular occurrence, whether it's the national news or the local news. So thank you, um, Barbara Blake, Hannah, for opening that door and blazing the trail. I, I find that I've been called a pioneer and a door opener. I'm so glad because it was very sad that they, they didn't renew my contract because so many people had phoned in saying, get that N-word off our screens. And the racism that I suffered 50 years ago was very painful to lose my job. You know, it had been really good and the money of course and it took a long time before I got another job I had to go back to being a secretary a temporary secretary but to find that 50 years later you know they've made a, a press award in my name because of that incident and there are young journalists like my like yourself saying you open doors for us I'm just so glad I couldn't be happier the awfulness of what happened 50 years ago I've long lived over that with the life I've lived since but to see that it got remembered and is put to some use oh I'm so happy I couldn't be happier truly <laughs> thank you so much for sharing that with us I mean, like you said, this was 50 years ago. I mean, and you still look young, beautiful, radiant, and you're always so full of life. You're always, 
you know, turning up places on, when I look at your social media, you're here, there and everywhere. Tell us about <laughs> some of your secrets to living such a fulfilling life and being so happy because that radiates, radiates through even as we're on this Zoom right now. What's some of the secrets? My darling, I, you'd have to say I found God, I found Christ, I found Christianity, I found Ethiopian Christianity, I found Black Christianity, I found Rastafari, I found Garveyism, I found the, the joy of my Black history, I found the joy in my Blackness, but most of all, to find a, 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 a Black way of celebrating God and godliness, to try and live that. Um, that's been my life, you know, and and I think that's why, I don't know, maybe that's my blessing from Jah. It makes me happy all the time to have that knowledge and to try and live that knowledge. And I am not perfect in any way, but I think my only perfection is in trying very hard to live up to the, that standard to live the example set by Emperor Haile Selassie, to live the, the, the objectives of Marcus Garvey. You know, it's, it's, it's a, there's a light that I can follow and looking to the light, maybe that's what shines back from me, you know, or shines forward from me, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> Beautifully put. And I mean, we're living in the age of Black Lives Matter. We're seeing people become more culturally aware of their blackness and people are embracing that more. You're somebody who's done that from the very beginning. Um, and you're saying, you know, that's part of your daily mantra. That's what keeps you going. Would you encourage us to delve more into finding out who we are and embracing that side of us? Yes, yes, yes. It's a, a lesson. It's, I came back home to Jamaica you know, bitter for the racism that had made me leave England. And I immediately found Rastafari. I found the teachings right on, on in, in a, a, a backyard in a man's home, a man named Doug, Dougie Mack up in Warwick Hill, one of the, the ghetto communities of Kingston. And there I found the beauty of Rastafari. There I found make love not war. There I found godliness in a black form and i really am grateful to that i've lived that since 1972 trying as hard as i can to live up to the teachings i learned in that backyard so many years ago the the the, 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 the objectives of looking up of being proud and of trying to to achieve that that state of godliness i mean all religions teach it and this is just, this is why they say Rasta is a religion. Not that, I mean, I don't, Rastas themselves say it's not a religion, it's a lifestyle, which it is. But out of it, the, the focus on Emperor Haile Selassie and his, his, his very Christly way of living, which we, we learn in his speeches and the things he did, that sets an example. And then when we see Ethiopian Orthodox Christianity, which is a history going right back to the, the birth of Christ and, and in a country that is so devoted to Christianity in its monasteries, in its prayers, in its liberty. It's, it's just so inspiring. I mean, here we have a foundation. We as descendants of slaves, we have nothing. We had nothing other than the history of ourselves as brute, as children of people who were brutalized by our colonial masters, 
We had no history. We didn't know where we'd come from in Africa. We were just naked slaves dropped on this plantation. And here suddenly was something else, a history. We, we could know who we were, where we had come from, what we had done, the beauty of our, our, our people, the, the bravery of our warriors, the victories, the battles, the, 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 the temples, the monasteries, the, the icons, the, the whole history of Ethiopia as a Christly nation. You know, the oldest um, um, church ever in, has been found, which is in Axum in Ethiopia, and it dates back to the first century. So we can look at the story of, of, of the, the Ethiopian queen and her eunuch who were traveling to Jerusalem to find out about what's this Jesus Christ we've heard about. And on this side of the Jordan, they met the, the apostle Philip, and they asked him, and Philip told them about it, and they said, how can we be part of it? And he said, just believe and be baptized. So they were baptized and went back to Ethiopia and founded the first Christian church outside of Jerusalem. Well, there now we have proof. Archaeologists, British, English, white European archaeologists have found this ancient church. So we can be like, you know, proud. Hey, we really, we are, we're part of that. It's not all just King James version. That he wrote in what 1400, translated into his people's language, English. No, we had our own from from Amharic and before Amharic um, Gize, You know, our own um, our own hymns, our own prayers. It's just such a beautiful foundation. You know, I hope I'm not going on too much about it, but it's it's my life, darling. It's my life. It's the foundation on which I live, on which I do everything everything yeah. you know no you're not going on about it too much at all I think when something is embedded in you and means so much to you and it and it comes out in everything that you do whether it's your career whether it's your family whether it's your role um that you're in right now it's important that we get that backstory that we understand who we are and I appreciate you for sharing how important your faith is to you with us thank you, thank you. no problem what are, what are some of your daily habits that you still do now that you've been doing for a long time? Now, I know you talk a lot about your faith, so I'm assuming prayer is a big part of your daily habits. For young people who are going to be listening to this podcast, what are some of the key habits that have kept you strong um, over the years that we should be incorporating? Give us some of Barbara Blake Hanna's words of wisdom. <laughs> well, I do start every day with prayer. You know, I couldn't begin without, even if it's just the Lord's Prayer and our prayer to the Virgin Mary. But I say a few prayers, spend some time in the morning thinking about the day and what great things are going to happen to me today. That's something I always say, and that puts a smile on my face. What good thing is going to happen to me today? Could be anything. It could be the fact that, oh, there's a green planting in the fridge that I can fry for breakfast. Just one good thing. What's the good thing that's going to happen to me today? And then I can look forward to that despite everything else that's happening, you know, um, whatever, all the other, I mean, and there are always other little things that will happen, you know, the, the call you were expecting didn't come or whatever, whatever. The but Zoom just, you were expecting with me. <laughs> <laughs> the Zoom I left 
get down somebody that didn't have for so many times <laughs> for such a long time. But <laughs> one good thing that can happen every day. And that really keeps me going. It's kept me going so very long. There's always something nice to look forward to. Oh, you know, the, the guavas on the tree outside are ripening. Oh gosh, I'm gonna get a guava today. Whatever it is, just one good thing that's gonna happen today. I would say that's very much my mantra, daily mantra. Mm -hmm. That is so important that you bring that up. It's, it sounds so simple, but yet still so effective, especially when everyone's talking about their mental health and looking after their well-being, especially mm. during the pandemic. Yes. So it's really important. Yes. Thank you. Um, so I wanted to know, like, obviously you've had this remarkable life um, which you shared with us a bit about. I wanted to know if there was a particularly challenging time in your life and, and what sort of things did you do or think about or say or turn to to overcome that difficult period in your life? Well, I'll tell you this, there have been several difficult periods in my life because I have been homeless often. Um, I did learn though that if you can live in a palace or under a tree, and remain the same, keep the same equilibrium mental state, then you're living life okay. So knowing that helped me through a lot of difficult past pat patches in my life. When I was homeless, um, you know, friends would take me in or, I mean, but the best time was once I literally lived in a tent under a tree by a river with my little son um, and, it was great. I'd been sent there by our Ethiopian Archbishop. It was at a place in the hills above Kingston where a lot of members of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church lived. Some of the priests would live there when they were doing their, their training, but just us poor members of the church. And I went up there with my son. He was about five then. And they gave me a little thatched house to live in, but I had a tent. So I pitched it on the land right beside that little house. And um, we lived there for a, quite a while. And it was wonderful. It was wonderful to get up every morning and bathe in the river. We had to literally walk down and cross the river two times to get to civilization, you know? And there would be an office that I could go to that, or go down to the cleaner to del deliver a letter. I had a manual typewriter that I would use then. And we had a little radio, a battery radio. We could listen to the radio there. But it was beautiful to live there. And because of that belief in one good thing happening every day, um, it helped me to endure that particular time of home homelessness. And as I said, it wasn't the only time. But those times enabled me to appreciate love of the times when I did live in the palaces because you know I, I had those opportunities. I have friends, for example, who own you know expensive North Coast hotels who I can always say, hey, I'd love to have a weekend. And they'd say, sure, Barbara, come on over, spend the weekend. And we'd go and have three nights in a beautiful place. Or I'd get a job to do something that would put me up at one of these places. Or just friends, you know, living, visiting my girlfriend in Hollywood, for example, living in her house on Coldwater Canyon, a Hollywood movie star. So it's been, you know, 
this and that of life, that gives me a chance to be balanced. I've had the, the, the bright and the dark, and the dark has been bright times, while the bright sometimes has not been so great. You know what I mean? Hollywood movie stars are not all happy. Let me tell you that I discovered, you know? So it really gives you a chance to look at life as a whole and see your own life as a whole, because the best thing of all is life. To get up every morning and still be alive, to look up at the sky and say, thank you, Jeff, for giving me another day. Oh, I am so blessed. He's given me 80 years. Oh, Jeff, thank you so much. 80 years. I never thought I'd have so many. You know, my little son was born when I was 45. And I prayed, just give me five years with him, just five. Oh, thank you for five, 10. Please, Jeff, oh, let me see him reach. 30, let me see him reach 21. And look, he's a big man in his 30s. Oh, yeah, I am so blessed, you know, so blessed, so blessed. Yes, thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. You truly <laughs> are, you truly are. When you, say, when you said 80, what came back to me was our last conversation when you said to me, um, you know, you were 79 and you was looking forward to your 80th birthday. And here we are again, and you've mentioned <laughs> 80 and I'm like, you do not look a day over 50. I got there. Listen, darling, what does 80 look like? You know what I mean? It's I just life. What does, what does any age look like? You know what I mean? We don't know. A blind person doesn't know what I look like. It's the spirit within you. It's the spirit within you. Someone speaking to me on the other end of a phone doesn't know what I look like. You know, it's about life. It's about having life and what you do with that life that you have. Not how you look, whether you're pretty or fat or thin or whatever, rich or poor. It's what you do with the life that you have while you have it. That's really what's important, darling. Really, really. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, let's go back to a bit about your career really quickly. You mentioned you're a journalist through and through. You're also an author. You've written books. Um, what skills do you think today's journalists need to have to continue to write compelling stories and really, really shine a light on so many different things that are happening right now? What are your, say, top five skills that journalists need to have? A journalist needs to be able to listen, to listen to answers. I would say that's really important. A lot of, of stories I see are just written by somebody who has a thought in their mind and whatever the person is saying, they don't care. They're just gonna write the story they have in their mind. But listening and telling a story is important. Um, research, in-depth study, and that includes reading widely, reading widely, reading and, and I mean, Read, really reading, not just reading today's newspapers or today's hit book, but reading in depth, reading, reading even Greek and Roman mythology, because there are examples. The story of, of the Odyssey, um, Homer's travels before he reaches Troy and the, the story of Troy, but all the things that happen, the adventures that happen on the way are life lessons that are really worth knowing. So to read widely is very important to be a good journalist. Then again, reading widely encourages your vocabulary and your writing style. And that's really important as well. Um, a lot of, of journalists 
are limited in our language limited and you can write a story but then you're considered a good journalist when you really have a good command of the language and that's very important having a good command of the language being able to use it grammatically and dramatically that's really important really important um a curiosity a good journalist is curious a good journalist finds stories that nobody else has found or finds angles on a story that nobody else has found mm -hmm. that curiosity is what makes a good journalist and will always keep you employed in the newsroom and, and will propel you to um, an individual career, a career of your own, where you are a, a byline. Um, that curiosity is very important, very important. Those would be some keys, I would say. But I think reading widely is perhaps the most important one. That enabled me to be a good journalist. My father's library was vast, and he would always put books in front of us to read. Read this, read that, read this and tell me what it says, Barbara. I haven't got the time to read it. He called me Babs. Read this for me, Babs, and tell me what it's about. And he'd give me this book. Oh, yes, daddy. But <laughs> yeah, you know, vocabulary, vocabulary, reading. Absolutely brilliant points there. And I, I will be taking on that advice myself as a journalist. Like, Listen, good I mean, I need to admire you, you know, because you're really excellent. You've done wonders. Just Jazz, a fabulous publication. And that such a young person as you have done it is brilliant. You need so much applause and praise. And I hope you're entering the Barbara Bacana Press Awards this year. I hope you are. I'd like, I'm going to be one of the judges. I want to see your work come up in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I, I, I've got the email to enter. I haven't done it yet. But I mean, we are going a bit off sidetrack, but I will do. I will do. You've, you've warned me. I will do. We're talking about journalism and you're one of the great British journalists, young lady. You made a name for yourself. Yes. Excellent. 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 Thank you so much. That means the world to me. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you. Now we did get a bit off track there, but let's let's go back to the last couple of questions that I have for you. It, it, that's always the case when when we talk, it, it's just so free flowing. And sometimes I just have to, you know, put the questions to one side. But on this time, I'm going to stick to the script. Um, I mean, tell me about some of the advice you've been given and what is some of the advice that you have really held on to throughout your life and you know was there any like influential figures you was around you mentioned Dougie Mack earlier um did he give you any advice that sort of stayed with you throughout the years that you can share yes but his whole advice was about how to live life properly and how to live life as a woman because I really didn't know what being a woman was, being female, yes, you know, we get those lessons all around from movies and all of that. But being a woman is a special art that we females are not taught often enough. And Rastafari gave me a lot of lessons in that, in how to be second and yet be first. You know, we, we're, we're very much in a world, especially when women's liberation came along and freedom and we got the pill and all of that. 
we were like, oh, we're equal now, and we can do this, and they can do that, and we're equal. But sometimes it, there's an art in just folding gently and letting the man and the males step forward, and then adding the gracefulness of femalehood. Men love that, and men will give you big space for that when you do it. So I've learned that, and I, I learned that in Doggy Mac's backyard. I really learned that. I learned a lot about being woman in that backyard, because they would be all men. I mean, the only women were his little daughters and his wife who would be in the house anyway. I'd be the only woman sitting there in the back. And I'm like, yeah, I, you said that, I can say this. And sometimes he would say, no, Sister Barbara, let the man them speak first and listen to everything the man them have to say. And when them don't talk, you just take one little essence and bring it forward like a flower. And wow. see how effective it will be. Yeah. And that was a good lesson that I learned, a good lesson that I learned. Um, I don't know mentoring. I think I learned a lot um, when I was a, a senator, an independent senator in the parliament, because there I learned about how governments run, how a parliament runs. Um, literally, what happens when someone brings a bill to parliament to the lower house and then it comes up to the upper house for debate discussion and then goes back to the lower house at the upper house we have a chance to make recommendations and everything we do is according to an order and according to the constitution and i think more people who profess to be leaders should spend some time in parliament just listening to how parliament works literally how parliament works. They should first of all, read the constitution. Most people haven't read it. I hadn't read it till I went to parliament. I said, oh, what do I do? They said, read the constitution. After you've read the constitution, come to Senate three weeks in a row and don't say anything. Just listen and learn. And I really learned a lot. I mean, running a country is not just saying something. I want this to happen and blah, blah, blah. no. There's an order, there's a system, there's a process that we need to learn in order to really be effective. And I wish more people with Afrocentric ideas like myself were to do that and go forward to represent us in parliament. There's this thing about oh, politics, we mustn't be a politician. No, we need us. We need to have people like us in parliament, not just the traditional parliamentarians. I mean, it's practically being handed down from father to son now in our parliament. There's so many children of former parliamentarians there because they learned the process from being around their parents. You know, just like lawyers, children become lawyers and doctors, children become doctors. Well, why can't we Afrocentric politicians become Afrocentric politicians in parliament? I'd like to see that. I'd like to see more of that because there's a need and we're not feeling that need. We're just complaining when things don't happen the way we want them to be. You know, Diane Abbott in England, I admire her so much, that lady. I knew her from she was in the National Union of Journalists because I had to apply to the NUJ for membership when I was making a film and I wanted to have an, an all black film crew. Then. 
I had to apply to the NUJ and she was the one who negotiated for me. And they said, well, you can't have an all black film crew, but you can purposely advertise for black crew members. And from then she has now gone to become the black parliamentarian. And I know she's controversial and I know she gets a lot of hate mail, but she just continues. She's unstoppable. She, she is there and she speaks and she does what needs to be done by black people in parliament. Diana Abbott, I have a lot of time for her. And that's an example we need to follow. We need to follow that example, especially in Britain, really, you know? You need more Diana Abbott's over there, please. <laughs> we definitely do. Now I wanted to touch on um, the fact that you was good friends with the late, great Bob Marley. Um, did, did Bob ever give you any words of advice that you have carried through your life? And, and can you share those with us? Yes. Best advice he ever gave me was to read the autobiography of Emperor Ayala Selassie. I was there at the house one day and he was sitting out. He would usually sit on the front steps reading. He said to me, you read this book, Sister Barbara? I said, no, no. He said, this is the most important book you should read. After the Bible, you should read this book. And I said, yes, yes, okay. I was very much in awe of him because he was <laughs> such a, a figure, you know, and I was just a woman. And th by then I'd learned that woman behavior when you're around rasters is you take a humble position. And I said, yes, okay, all right. And I did. And it was the most important book I read. I, had, I didn't know the man was so great. I didn't know he'd said so, much, so many important things. I didn't know how important he was. And... That was, yes, good advice he gave me. Bob was a lovely man, a really nice man. I mean, he was really my friend, you know what I mean? Uh, 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 I have some main friends and he was one. And I was very humble. I would stop at his house on the way from work. I worked at the office of the prime minister, which was just a block away. And I'd stop there just to be in Rasta company, maybe get a little swift, you know. But all the Rasta men, yeah, like where else I'd get a swift? The Rasta men around him. It was so interesting to be there in the backyard of 56 Hope Road. And I, I spent a lot of time there, I'm glad to say. And we were really good friends. I, my last time seeing him, I was there and he played some football, some artists, some American artists had come to see him and he sat in their bus and talked to them. And then I said, you know, I have to go. And he said, where are you going? And I was living way up Red Hills that time and I would have had to take the bus. And he called somebody and said, carry her whichever part you want to go. And those were his last words to me, carry her whichever part you want to go. And yeah, that was my friend, Bob really my good friend, Bob Marley. He, he, he manifests himself all the time at that 56 Oak Road. Once we had, every year we'd have a celebration on his birthday and you know, there'd be something happening in the yard. Well, this time they were having a birthday party and there was a cake to be cut and we were there, members of the Orthodox Church were there and they said their prayers. And then the nabbing started up, started to beat and it was a full moon night. And sometimes around the full moon, there's like a, a bright gold glow around it. And we, just as they played, the drums started beating. Somebody screamed out and said, look, look. And when we looked up at the moon, the, the gold around the moon was red, gold, and green. And if you think I'm not telling the truth, 
it was such a, a phenomenon that it was on the front page of the Gleaner the next day that, oh, there was a, a red, gold, and green ring around the moon. And they didn't even know that what had was happening at Bob Marley Museum at the same time. That was mm. Bob. That was Bob, you know? Amazing. I'm, Yes, he was a very special man, and I'm glad that I had some time in his company so that I I, I can, you know, I some of that, I got some of that. <laughs> some of that light got to shine on me, you know? Yeah. This was a blessing. Good man. Good I can man. absolutely imagine, you know, long live the legend. Of I was never one of his girlfriends, never, ever. Somebody asked me that the other day, weren't you one of his girlfriends? No, I had my <laughs> own boyfriend at the time, you know, and I would never, because Richard, his wife, was my church sister. I was a member of the Orthodox Church, you know. I wouldn't do that. I didn't do those things. Yeah. But that's why he was my friend. He was just my good friend, you know. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. What a beautiful memory there to end on. Now, I mean, I couldn't let you go and end this um, important discussion without asking you, what do you love most about being Jamaican? What I love most about being Jamaican is living in paradise. It's the most beautiful, wonderful country in the world. You just drive around and there's a river. Or you look over there and there's a waterfall. Or hey, white sand beach. Oh, look at those mountains. Hey, look at that valley just covered in trees. Oh, look at all these fruit trees. Oh, the fruit, the food. Jamaica is paradise. If only we people who live here would just realize it and make it be the paradise of human behavior that it is. Nature is behaved so beautifully here. The, the, the hurricane that swept over from Louisiana all the way to New York, it just dropped some water on Jamaica, rain, it mashed up a few roads, but all our underground pools are now full. The rivers are gonna flow and flow. We're gonna have no drought this year and the rivers are gonna keep flowing. The rivers, the waterfalls. I mean, you, I've been to some of the smaller islands that have no rivers. They have to either have rain or process salt water. I couldn't live there. I couldn't live where there wasn't a river. I could get up right now and drive for a half hour and be at a river, a river. Just sit in the water and enjoy it. That's what I love about being Jamaican. Jamaica. I love Jamaica. Jamaica is my most loved. I don't know, my son, Anja. Jamaica. Is that what his name is? Jamaica. Jamaica. <laughs> Beautifully put. Beautifully put. Thank you so much. And listen, thank you. Um, thank you for asking me to have this conversation. I've enjoyed it so much. You had me say so many things, things I haven't really said before. Thank you very much, young lady. Thank you. No problem. It's always a joy to connect with you. And listen, thank you so much, like I said, for opening doors and for being a light and for sharing so much of your life with me and for continuing to be an icon of Jamaica and also for us here in Britain. Like we absolutely love you, adore you and salute you. Bless you, darling. Bless no you. problem. I Bless you too. I have been speaking to the amazing... Empress Barbara Blake Hanna for Impacting Jamaica, the podcast. Impacting Jamaica is powered by the Philip and Christine Gore Family Foundation. If you or anyone you know is involved with projects and activities that excite, motivate and encourage, send us an email at impactingjamaica at gmail.com. 
we would love to hear from you. Do join us again for another in the series on Google Podcast, Audible, Spotify, Podcast Addict, and Stitcher. You can also visit us at impactingjamaica.com.